leading up to Easter, in which we're looking at Jesus' journey to the cross. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, there's an underlying story thread being played out in the Gospel of Matthew, and really kind of in every Gospel, if you look at it carefully enough, between Jesus and Peter. And that is why we pick those passages of Scripture for our call to worship and our assurance of pardon. We want to really look for just a few minutes this morning uh, at kind of how the story of Jesus and Peter is unfolding in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospels of Matthew. So I'm not going to be kind of exegeting one particular passage this morning. I'm going to be trying to gain some kind of big picture ideas from a number of different places and a number of different scenes as they unfold. And so I'm going to ask you to bear with my methodology this morning and try to track with me. But we're going to read, uh, and you'll see this in your worship folder, from two different places uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 26, 30-35, which is a scene at the Last Supper where Jesus predicts Peter's denial and Peter tells Jesus he's wrong. And then in Matthew 26, 69-75, where indeed we find that Jesus has been right and Peter has been wrong. So let's read these passages of Scripture together this morning, if we can, okay? This first scene from Matthew 26, 30-35. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it was written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you. Now, boom, boom. That's the sound of Peter throwing the other disciples under the bus. Okay? Just insert that. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, even before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then in Matthew 26, 69 through 75, now Peter, this is after Jesus' arrest. Now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. She said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up, and said to Peter, certainly you, are, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, this is God's word. Three things I want us to see from these, these two passages and some other kind of points within Matthew's gospel this morning. Three things about Peter. I want you to see Peter... The bad theologian, which produces Peter, the coward. But then I do want you to see and to remember from Acts 5, Peter, the rock. And why it is that we should be encouraged in looking at the progression of Peter's faith as he kind of relates to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's just start with Peter, the bad theologian. This scene in Matthew 26, this, these two scenes, is the culmination of of a growing tension that began all the way back in Matthew 16, which we, we, we talked about you know, a number of months ago, on the heels of G Peter's magnificent confession of Jesus as the Messiah. This is the passage that we read in our call to worship. Peter rightly recognizes Jesus as the long-awaited king who had come into the world 
who was going to rescue his people, people, but Peter wrongly assumes that the job description uh, involves a cross and not a throne. I mean, Peter, this is a cheeky way of saying it, but Peter has a wonderful plan for Jesus' life. And Peter's plan for Jesus includes a throne in Jerusalem and throngs of loyal subjects and divisions of soldiers following him into battle against the Romans. It doesn't include a cross. And so when, when Jesus starts talking about a cross... Peter has in mind to mildly rebuke him. <laughs> I mean, don't you, don't you love that? What's on the agenda for today? I think I'll rebuke the Son of God. He takes him aside from the others and he says, Far be it from you, Lord. Now, translation. Jesus, that's not the plan. Messiahs don't suffer. They aren't killed. They conquer. They win. They're powerful. See, that's, that's Peter's theology. And if you remember the passage, we read it a few minutes ago, at least one version of Mark 8, Jesus offers his own rebuke, and this would be stinging, I would think, get behind me, Satan. And the reason Jesus says it that way is that Peter's plan echoes the temptation of Satan during his 40 days in the wilderness to seek a throne, remember? To seek power, to seek authority and honor and fame in the world, not suffering and death. So Jesus says, you are a hindrance to me. And that word hindrance is a great word in the Bible. It's the word scandalon, from which we get scandal. It means stumbling block. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, now imagine this. Peter, you're in my way. You're keeping me. This, this idea you have that you keep throwing out there. You're keeping me from my mission. You're working against me. And then Jesus says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. Jesus is saying, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel of the cross in the world's way of thinking is completely upside down. Paul says it's foolishness. He says it's, it's weakness. It just doesn't make sense to our normal way of thinking. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get through to Peter. You see, Jesus has not come to sit on a throne of power. He's come to hang upon a cross of shame. He will not wear a golden crown with a diadem of gold. He will be crowned with a crown of thorns. He's not going to Jerusalem to be lauded and to be welcomed as a king. He's going there to be despised and rejected and tried and executed because that's the only way he can accomplish the mission for which he was sent. And the rest of the gospel narrative shows that even with Jesus' correction, <laughs> Peter still misunderstands the centrality and the necessity of the cross. Peter doesn't understand Jesus has not come to bring judgment. He's come to bear judgment. That Jesus has not come to conquer and win, but to be conquered and to die. And so when they come to take him away, what does Peter do? Do you remember he pulls out a sword and tries to start a fight? Why? Because he doesn't understand the gospel. And we need to look carefully at the language in these verses. In verses 31 through 33 here of Matthew 26, Jesus warns, the disciples, that they will all, do you see the words, fall away because of him. Fall away. Now the word, the word translated fall away there, it's interesting. Remember I just said this a minute ago. It's the same word scandalon. It, it, means, it means to be offended by or to provide a stumbling block or to scandalize. Jesus is warning them. He's saying you are going to be scandalized by me. You're going to stumble over my cross. You're going to be scandalized by my suffering and death. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 calls the, excuse me, the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive. It's scandalous if you don't understand it. And that's Peter's problem. Peter, along with 
the rest of these guys is offended by Jesus' cross, and it's the reason why he ultimately denies that he knows Jesus. Peter, see, Peter thinks, if we can get inside of this for just a minute, Peter thinks that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and he's one of the good people, obviously. That's what he believes, that he and Jesus are on the same team. (laughs) And together, they're going to go into Jerusalem and kick some butt. Jesus has been trying to get Peter to see that he's not one of the good people, but he's a sinner who needs a savior. And Peter, Peter wants Jesus to be his rabbi. He wants him to be his teacher. He wants him to be his leader. He even wants him to be his captain, but he doesn't want him to be his savior. And if Jesus is savior, then that means Peter needs saving. And that's what Peter doesn't believe. Peter's willing to risk. Peter's willing to risk that Jesus might have to die with him. He's not willing to risk that Jesus must die for him. In his place, as a substitute. So Peter's gospel is a gospel of self-salvation. And that's, that's the offense of the cross. That the cross is there, it stands right there and it offends our pride because it stands against all of our self-salvation projects. It forces us to admit that no matter how hard we try or how good or moral we might be, that no matter how, how committed to the cause we might prove ourselves to be, we need a savior. The cross forces us to admit that we're guilty and weak and broken and needy, and deserving of God's wrath, and that we cannot save ourselves, but that the flesh, this inner part of us that still insists on doing things on its own without any help from anybody else, the flesh can't tolerate that. The flesh is opposed to the grace of the gospel, and so Peter's gospel here is a gospel of self-salvation. It's not a gospel of substitution. Peter's going to do it. Peter's going to prove himself. Peter's going to win a place in Jesus' administration by proving to be loyal and brave. Peter's going to do the work. And that's the gospel of self-salvation. And the cross is opposed to all of that. It preaches substitution, not self-salvation. The cross means that God comes down and puts himself in our place where we deserve to be so that if we believe in him, we get to go where he deserves to be. That Jesus took upon himself what we deserve. So that when we believe in him, we get what he deserves. And that's what Peter doesn't understand yet. See that? Peter the bad theologian. He doesn't understand the importance and centrality of Jesus' cross. The second thing, however, in this passage helps us see is, is the irony of this is that for all of his bravado and promises and uh, readiness to throw the other disciples under the bus, Peter is a coward. His bad theology, his misunderstanding about the cross, produces, has produced cowardice. And ultimately, this is the reason why he denies Jesus at the very end here. Now, it's very helpful to me. I don't know about you, but very helpful. Very helpful diagnostic for me that the, one of the ways that you can tell if, like Peter, you're living in unbelief or you're misunderstanding the gospel or if you're still offended by the cross is to gauge the level of anxiety and fear that are in your life. You know, how overcome by fear, how, how fearful, how, how much is cowardice still kind of at the core and the, the root of your life? And that means the opposite. It means one of the ways that you know that you're growing up in your understanding of the gospel, that it's really coming home to your heart and it's getting into the, the interior of your life and becoming reality in your soul as it begins to produce courage. Or better yet, I love this word. This is a word when people ask me how they can pray. This is usually the word I give them. Fortitude, right? Courage in the midst of of adversity and pain and hardship, that you can, you can endure without melting down when things begin to get, get hot all around you, when things begin to get rough and you have to walk through something that's very difficult, you can do it and not melt down, not give in, not fall apart. That's what Peter's lacking. The 
gospel's not done that yet in him. And I know the text doesn't mention that Peter was afraid, but just in reading, if you just read it and think about kind of your interactions with people, you can begin to see how Peter just begins to panic. You see it in verses 69 through 75? The first encounter in verses 69 and 70 is almost nonchalant, right? The servant girl comes, he says, I, I don't know what you mean. The second time in, in 71 and 72, Peter, this time he's, he swears an oath. So he's up the ante. You know, I swear on my mother's grave. I don't know him. Okay, so you can begin to feel his desperation. You can sense his, what we, some of you will know, his epi emotion that's beginning to kind of surface through what's happening here. And by the third time, by the third time he's beginning to completely unravel. He invokes a curse upon himself. Right, do you see that? He begins to, he invokes a curse upon himself. In other words, it's cross my heart and hope to die. If I'm not telling the truth, you know, may I be cursed. And it's really almost comical because his, we're, told, we're told his accent has already given him away. And yet he continues to ramp up his denials. And so I thought, you know, he's like the little boy with chocolate all over his face who tearfully promises his mom that he did not eat the brownie that's missing from the counter. Right? And every parent has had a moment like that with a child, and I know in dealing with our kids at the bottom is fear. Just fear. Now, this passage of Scripture is here. It's given to us, not so we can stand in judgment of Peter for his cowardice and lack of faith, but so that we can see ourselves in him and marvel that Jesus is still building his church on the confession of cowards and deniers like Peter and like you and me. So if you read these verses, okay, and in your heart you think, well, stupid Peter. Had it been me. See, no, 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 no. That's, that's missing the point. That's the very thought Peter had at the Last Supper. Do you remember that? Even if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away. In his best Charleston Heston you know, voice or whatever it might be. And Jesus says, yes, you. You too. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us in these verses. That's why they're here. Yes, you. But how? See, that's, that's the work we've got to do as we read the scripture, right? How? I mean, you know, I, you probably most of us have never really found ourselves in the kind of situation Peter finds himself in here. So how is it that we're to find ourselves in this passage alongside of Peter who's deathly afraid and so is more than willing to deny Jesus even three times? You see that word deny. That's mentioned over and over and over again here in these verses is a word that means to disregard or to pay no attention to or to say no to or even to disavow or to disown or to renounce. And when you put it that way, then you can begin to see all of the ways that fear begins to dominate our lives and we deny him too. And the best way I know to do this, really the only way I know to do this, is just to kind of talk about myself for a minute. But in hopefully talking about myself, talk about you as well to help you kind of see that this really is, yes, yes, us too here. And so I thought of two ways. I just kind of kicked this around this week and even last night a little bit as I was thinking about this. Two ways that I can really see how I am guilty of the very same thing that, that Peter uh, is guilty of here in these verses of denying him. And they're just these, just think through these two things and then make your own. The work you've got to do is make your own applications. But because so, you can't piggyback on all of my work, you've got to do it yourself too. But let me help. Let me lead us out in this, okay? And here's one. I, I realize I deny him when it costs me something to acknowledge him, and I don't. You know, it cost me, it possibly cost me my, my reputation or friendship or, 
a relationship or a job or a client. And I just want to say, this is coming in our culture. And we better prepare ourselves. And even more, we better prepare our children for it. It's going to become more and more and more costly from a business perspective, from an interpersonal perspective, from all kinds of ways of looking at it. It's going to become more costly to claim the name of Jesus. And I'm constantly here. Think about this. I mean, this is where you can just pray for me. I'm constantly, as the leader, you know, and pastor, one of the leaders and pastors of this church, I'm constantly tempted to not say hard things to people that they need to hear that Jesus has commanded me to say because I'm afraid they'll leave the church or they'll be mad at me. I mean, having people like me is more important than obedience. Dude, I mean, ugh. And that's denying them. That's making an idol out of people's approval or, or whatever it is I'm, I'm unwilling to live without. That's being ashamed of him. And this is something we've really struggled with in our family. As, as a nuclear family, as we're trying to grow up and kind of be, be our own thing. And small things, right? I mean, you've, you've seen, like choosing to come home from a vacation with extended family to get back for worship. Or refusing to play baseball on Sunday mornings and just have to be content to be misunderstood or to have other people, even sometimes people you love, that you, 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 know, you, you want, you're in a relationship with, just they think you're weird or for them to be angry with you because of the decisions you make, because of the convictions you have, because you follow a king who demands obedience. And the reason it's so hard, the reason it's so hard, and I, I find I just clench up underneath this, is that I'm afraid. You know, I'm afraid of the disapproval of people, especially people I love, like close friends and family. I, I don't want them to be upset with me. You know, and so if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, and this is, this is a sin that I am particularly fond of and proficient at. If I'm not careful, I will live my life and make decisions based upon the expectations of others and what, and what they desire of me and not what God has said or what he's called me to. And by doing so, I deny him. But then let me think of a second application of this, okay? Just another way that you could apply it. I really believe, as I look at my own life, that I deny him when I refuse to treat others in kind without how I have been treated by him. So, for example, Jesus has been infinitely patient with me, and yet I'm so incredibly impatient with other people. He has promised to never give up on me. I give up on people all the time, and that's denying him. That's, that's a denial of him. I'm living in the way that I treat others completely contrary to the way that he's treated me. I'm not taking into consideration the cross in the way I relate to others. It's the same, okay, so another example. It's the same when I refuse to forgive somebody who's hurt me, right? When I allow that offense to kind of begin to dig down into the deep places and get lodged in my heart and to color everything that I think about that other person. That's a complete denial of the fact that I've been forgiven of much more than anyone else might ever be guilty of against me. So there are all kinds of ways. Do you see? And there are all kinds of ways that we can find us in Peter, find ourselves in Peter's place here. And that's why this scene is included in the Gospels, is to help us to see how we deny him too, and then to help us repent. Now, let me say this. Ultimately, Peter is not defined by his betrayal of Jesus, but by his repentance. What qualifies him, and this is what great, this is where we've got to, we've got to get. We've got to get different lenses on this because this is what I feel like as I pastor you, you, this people in front of me. This is one of the places where I don't think we've quite 
gotten our heads around the gospel. What qualifies Peter to lead, to be the rock, is not that he performed perfectly and he proved himself loyal when all else, when all others failed. What qualifies Peter to lead was that he was a good repenter. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is repentance like this? It says that true repentance is grieving over your sin, hating it, and forsaking it. And that's exactly what Peter does here. The text says that when the rooster crowed and the full weight of what he had done came upon Peter, verse 75, he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, don't picture a tear trickling out of the corner of his eye and glistening as it kind of gently rolls down his cheek. This is, this, I, I, my translation, this is the ugly cry. This is sobbing, shoulder shaking, gasping, wailing with, with great agony. It's the kind of mourning that you might see at a funeral in the face of, or in the face of some great tragedy. Peter is completely undone. He is grieving. And can I just ask a question? Have you ever wept bitterly because of your sin? See, because that's, that's, that's the first step. I mean, that's, that's the first step because in the next scene, from this scene in the next scene, we see Peter and he's the rock. All of a sudden in Acts, Peter's the rock. Here he's weeping bitterly. But when we come to Acts, in Acts 5 in particular, he's boldly proclaiming Christ before the Jewish leadership, even though it leads to him being beaten. We're even told that Peter's and the other, Peter and the other disciples, I mean, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the sake of the name. I mean, that, that's Peter the rock, not Peter the coward. I mean, such a total life transformation, it just blows me away. And, and that's repentance. That's grieving over your sin and hating it and in the power of the Spirit, forsaking it for a greater obedience to Jesus. And I was struck this week, I don't know if you read in Acts chapter 11, but in Acts chapter 11, when the gospel began to go to the Gentile nations, the clue the apostles had that people were actually beginning to truly come to grips with the gospel was they began to repent. Their lives began to change. There, there was a complete reversal of the way they were living. They were headed in this direction, and then the gospel came to them, and they did a, a U-turn and went in the opposite direction headlong. And when the, when the apostles saw that kind of life transformation as a result of embracing and believing and living out the truth of the gospel, they said, wow, they, they've come to faith. It's their repentance. That was the expectation that led to the disciples saying, yes, they've come into the faith. Now, we need to ask, as we kind of come to a close here, what's changed? I mean, how do we explain how different the Peter of Acts is from the Peter of Matthew 26? I mean, where did the power for that kind of repentance, that kind of life transformation come from? And again, I think the catechism is helpful. It says that repentance happens when, and, and hear these words, when and only when, when in the one sense we come to a true sense or a real understanding of the depth of our sin, and at the same time apprehend the depth of God's love for us in Jesus. And that's exactly what happened to Peter in this scene. It isn't recorded in Matthew's gospel, but if you read Luke, Luke tells us that when the rooster crows, Jesus is somehow close enough to Peter that as the rooster crows and the remembrance comes to Peter's mind that he said before the rooster crows that Peter looks up, and as he looks up, Jesus is staring at him. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced, I have, no, I have no biblical foundation or backing for this whatsoever, okay? But I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that it was that look that melted Peter's heart and led to his repentance. Now, I don't imagine it to be a look of disappointment or a scowl 
with an I told you so glint in the eyes. I really think Peter could see two things in the eyes of Jesus when he looked upon his face on the heels of his greatest treachery and sin. I really believe he could see on the one hand sadness and grief. And on the other hand, a true and real and genuine compassion and love and acceptance. And that's what broke Peter's heart in two. That's what produces the sorrow that leads to repentance the Bible talks about. Jesus looked at him as if to say, I know you, Peter. I warned you. I knew this was coming. I know how sinful you are. And yet to say, but I love you, Peter. I'm going to die for you. For you who denied me. And that's what produced the change in his life. And that's what turned Peter the coward into Peter the rock. And that's what has to happen to us too. See, we need to come to a true sense of the depth of our sin and at the same time come, as Paul puts it, to grasp the height and depth and breadth and and length of the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And to know this love, Paul says, which surpasses knowledge. That's where the courage that we so desperately need comes from. And that's why we need the cross. That's why the cross has to be at the center of our life and our imagination because it's the cross that shows us both just how terrible our sin really is and just how much God loves us in spite of ourselves. And so here's what we've got to do. Here's the way we begin to apply this passage, I think. We have to look at the cross. We have to stare at the cross of Jesus until it, it brings a true sense of the depth of our sin or else we'll be full of pride just like Peter was. I mean, look at Peter. Peter, arrogant, self-confident, self-reliant. I mean, it really comes out, doesn't it? In these verses, as you go through the Gospel of Matthew, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. I mean, he has, granted, he has doubts about the other disciples. He has no doubts about himself. Self-confident, self-reliant. He's not suspicious of himself at all. And if the cross is not at the center of your life, then you'll take every opportunity to prop up your own righteousness by pointing out weakness in others. You'll have a very high opinion of your opinion. So you have to look at the cross until it brings a true sense of the depth of your sin, but then you also have to look at the cross until it convinces you of God's love. Or else you'll be insecure like Peter, constantly trying to prove yourself, trying to earn yourself a place in the kingdom, building a spiritual resume. You'll constantly be trying to walk on water. You'll be drawing swords to show your loyalty. And you see, the last thing that had to die in Peter was his pride and self-confidence. It was when he came face to face with his utter failure and Jesus' love on the other side of his failure that his life was changed. And until this moment, when Jesus looked at him, I really believe Peter's operating still in kind of this works righteousness system. He believed you had to earn God's love through your loyalty and devotion and your willingness to die for the cause. And he was pretty proud of his performance, and then he failed miserably. And I assume he figured, you know what, it's done. He's going to be done with me. I failed him. He's done with me. It's over. And then in in that exact moment, Jesus looked at him as if to say, I see you, Peter, and I know who you really are. And Peter was ashamed because Jesus wasn't angry. He looked at Peter and then took his eyes off of Peter and put them on the cross. And that's what changed Peter's life, experiencing the love of Jesus on the other side of his worst failure. See, the cross is where we find courage because on the one hand, the cross reminds us that we're sinners, that Jesus had to die for us. But on the other hand, the cross proves God's love for us. He was willing to die for us. And so we can't conclude that God is not for us. Look at the cross. God had every reason to turn against us. And he didn't. Instead, he turned against his own son. And so in Romans 8, Paul reasons this out this way. He says, if God would do that, if he gave up his own son 
then won't he also freely give us all things? And then Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right? Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not any kind of danger, not even death or the forces of darkness themselves can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And you see, it's the cross that teaches us that we have no claim on his love. It humbles us. Because he does not love us in response to anything we've done to earn or merit it. That means there's nothing also that, see, the other side of that is that means there's nothing that can separate us from his love. It secures us. And that's where the courage comes from. See, if you want to know what repentance looks like in this passage, this is what it looks like. It looks like we become a people who are no longer offended by Jesus' cross, but a people who begin to boast in Jesus' cross. And then the ultimate test, the ultimate test of repentance is like Peter, we become a people who ultimately are willing to take it upon ourselves and to follow him. Now, I know that's hard. So where do you find the courage? Where do you find the courage to put the cross in the middle of your life, in the middle of your relationships, in the middle of your finances, in the middle of your business model, in the middle of your retirement strategy, or your parenting, or your caring for your elderly parents, or your community involvement? Where do you find the courage to to take a cross and to bring it into all the ways you are living out the vocation God has called you to? The only place you can find the courage to do that is in staring and at the cross of Jesus Christ and meditating on the gospel of God that says there's nothing we've done to earn his love and yet he has given it freely to us and therefore there's nothing we can do to forfeit us, you know, forfeit his love. And that means that in all that we do, we can be supremely confident if our faith is in Jesus Christ that God is for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. And so we don't have to worry about failing. We've already failed. We don't have to worry about blowing it. We've blown it, and he loves us on the other side of it. We don't have to worry about screwing up. He knows we're going to screw up. We have nothing to fear. And so I just want to I just want to hang I just want to hang this in your soul and then pray. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel in this way. I do nothing. I gain everything. And the result is I do anything. Ultimately, that's the lesson Peter learned, and that's what led to his life change. And ultimately, that's what Jesus would long for us to embrace as well. And so let's pray as the team comes back up to lead us to sing. Lord Lord Jesus, we admit that we far too often, like Peter, are ashamed and offended by your cross, that we still hold out hope that somehow we can perform well enough to earn your love and your acceptance. Forgive us. Help us this morning not only to repent and forsake our sins, but to repent and forsake our righteousness in all the ways we're trying to make ourselves uh, acceptable to you. Uh, Even as we sing these songs, I pray, Jesus, that we would embrace the reality of the cross, the self-indictment of the cross, that it stands to convince us of our sin, but also it stands to convince us of your love. And would the knowledge of those things produce repentance in us that would bear much fruit to your glory. These are the things we pray. We pray them in your name. Amen. Go ahead, Terry. Terry's saying he has directions to the... uh... Yeah, just to... uh, If you'll go to Highway 17 North, cross Havendale, about a quarter of a mile or half mile. On the left, there's a road called Inman Drive just before the Ford dealership. 
If you'll take that at forks, you can take either fork and it dead ends into Cindy's home. There you so. go. That's easy. Thanks, Terry. Please come join us. Uh, we look forward to spending a fun time. The kid there, I've never heard of bounce houses with water slides on them. But no adult, I'm sorry, adults, I don't think you're allowed on those things. Um, but that might, that might, that sounds like a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, as we journey through the Gospel of Matthew together, if you think this is starting to sound redundant, we're all, you know, we're talking about the Gospel, the Gospel, the Gospel, the Gospel. Martin Luther, who was a who was the reformer, uh, the people in his church asked him, why do you continue to preach the Gospel every week? He says, because every week you come in here looking like a people who don't believe it to be true. Uh, and so we're going to preach it until we, until we believe us, ourselves to be a people who believe it to be true. And that's why we go back to it over and over again. But the promise is just this, that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, then as he calls you to go and take up whatever cross he calls you to bear, he promises to go with you. And that is the promise of the benediction. So receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore.